All right, into Joshua today. We're in Joshua 5. You know, one of the things that is most obviously different about my wife and I, uh, besides looks, because she's, she's got all of them, is that we enjoy, that I enjoy sports uh, and my zeal for competition. Uh, I don't think uh, that's unique to just me in this room. I think that that's probably maybe normative in the husband and wife relationship. Maybe not always the case, but like I grew up with sports. I followed my brother into a variety of different things. He played soccer. I played soccer, football, basketball. Well, no, no basketball. I have no basketball skill whatsoever. Baseball, football, whatever. I played three sports in high school. I was the ball boy for Ball State's football team. Big deal, right? That's a big deal. Uh, I play fantasy football. I love to watch sports anytime I get the opportunity, which is rare in my life at this point. I just love it. Now, Here's the thing, I wasn't born into a sports family. My parents were great at lots of things, they just weren't athletes. They never watched sports. It was my brother and I that really just started diving into them. Uh, my guess is that my mom and dad said, I gotta get these kids out of the house. And so we're gonna pull them into something, I don't know what it is, I really don't care. And so we just went into sports and we loved it. Uh, and so I, just from an early age, I bought in. I was just bought into the sports reality. And so I love them. Uh, not as much as I love Christ, not as much as I love my families. Like priority like matters, their ranking matters in that, but they have a piece of my heart. Now my wife is opposite, and she's in this room, so I'll be careful with what I say. Uh, the thought of her watching a Colts game in, in, its entirely, in its entirety would be like watching paint dry. She just has no desire whatsoever, which is odd because she was born into a sports family. Like her dad, grew up watching all of the terrible Cincinnati professional teams because he lived there. And he was just devoted to them. He played sports. He went on to play college football, and he works for the YMCA's. And so he just kept up tabs with his professional sports teams, but my wife never bought into that. It never really seemed desirable to her. She was born into it, but she never bought into it. Now, she would tell you that she's a Reds fan, but she could not name for you for the life of her one player on that roster. If you asked her today, and you please do, she would give you, she would give you King Griffey Jr., who hasn't played for the Reds for a decade. So, and I think this reality kind of dawned on me for the first time when we went early in our marriage to a Cubs game at Wrigley Field against the Reds. Uh, I, you, don't, you don't have to say much for, to get me to go to Wrigley and watch the Cubs. And so I jacked, I've got Cubs garb on, because I have Cubs garb, I have lots of it, I put my hat on, I'm ready to go, and my wife comes downstairs, and she's wearing a Reds hat. <laughs> and listen, I was young and dumb, I've grown from this, uh, I'm not this person anymore, but when she came down, my response to her was, uh, we're not going to the game with that hat on, all right? <laughs> Did not sit well, all right, oddly enough, and oddly enough, the resolution was that she went to the game with the Reds hat on, okay? <laughs> So we, we watched the game. I loved it. Everything was great. Wrigley filled the Ivy. The Cubs lost, though. And so I'm bummed. Anytime you go to a sporting event and your team loses, you're bummed a little bit. And sensing that, my beautiful wife, out of the graciousness of her heart, says, well, we should be happy for the Reds fans because their team won. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> this is what she said. And I said, what are you saying? We should be happy for them, because they won. 
I said, I'm not going to be happy. Why would I be happy for the Reds fans? And what happened next has become legend in our house. It is something that has been brought up over and over again. Uh, In my request, in my question of why I would uh, be happy for Reds fans, my wife said, quote, because they both play for America and we all win. (laughs) What a beautiful answer. Did not change my mood. I was still bummed. But it was in that moment that I realized that we were not yoked equally in sports enthusiasm. I had bought in. She never has, and she never did. And so for many of you, listen, many of you in this room, you were born into things that you bought into at an early age. Maybe you were born into things in your family, whether they were beliefs. Maybe there's a certain brand of car that your family has bought since the the inception of automobiles. Maybe you've just born into that and you bought into it. Maybe it's a, a sports team. Or maybe you're like my wife. Maybe you were born into things that you really never bought into. Maybe they were beliefs or whatever. Or maybe you're like me who wasn't born into something but bought into something wholeheartedly down the road. But regardless, regardless, every one of us made a decision whether we were going to buy in or not. We made that decision. And so over the course of the last few weeks, we've talked about Joshua. We've talked about the Israelites. We've talked about this nation moving in their journey into the promised land, the the land of Canaan, a journey that was marked with disobedience. It was marked with powerful displays of God's might. It was marked by deliverance from God. We've seen in this journey an incredible faith of Rahab that despite her past, God brought her into his holy people by the means of grace by her faith, faith, grace that was not merited to her. She was a prostitute. She didn't earn it. God gave it to her and spared her life by the scarlet cord that was hung over her window that points forward to the scarlet blood that would atone for our sins in Christ. And then we watched in this journey God demonstrate faith in uncertain times. A vision of his people crossing over the Jordan River. That God commanded faith and devotion from his people despite an, over, an overly impossible situation. God requires faith and devotion rather than communicating the hows of the scenario. He's not going to tell us how he got it, or we're going to get across the river. He just told them to devote themselves to him. And in, today in Joshua 5, we're going to see God command his people into a higher calling. God is going to double down on the issue of commitment and consecration in our lives. Double down on commitment that sees being part of the family of God, not something that you were born into, but rather something that every one of us must buy into in our lives. And what essentially God is asking for us to buy into is the pursuit of holiness in our life, being set apart. We've said this, faith is what sets us apart in the eyes of God, but your holiness and your walk with Christ is what sets you apart from this world. And so Joshua 5 is going to be a place where we're going to be able to jump off and talk about holiness. And so I'm just going to disclaimer here, this is hard. This may feel aggressive, right? But know our hearts, like we are chasing after God with every corner of our lives. That is a commitment that we have to God in this church, and we won't 
sacrifice untruth to feel better about ourselves. So please stay with me because I believe that this is super important for us today. So let's just start in our text today in Joshua 5, starting in verse 2. It says this, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the son of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeath Aeroth. I worked on that. I got it. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children who he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when in the circumcising the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And so I want you to understand, as a staff, we have been over the last almost year walking through about an hour and a half training every single week. And we're walking in that training to grow in our faith and our desire for unity amongst each other, our mission, our values, and our vision. One of the trainings that we walked through in this past month was over Joshua 5. And I loved it. I loved it so much that, that I think that it's important that we teach it here today. And so just know that a lot of this is not my own material, but it's worthy to be taught. It's worthy to be taught and heard. And so let's just talk about circumcision here a little bit and understand what we're dealing with. Understand what it represented in Israel. Circumcision is a sign that these people are God's uniquely chosen people. It was a command that was given to them in Genesis, in chapter 17, in the Abraham, the Abraham Covenant. Circumcision is what made these people God's people. It was an outward thing that showed devotion to God. And so this isn't a small thing. This is about holiness. This is a sacrament, much like baptism and communion. This is what is setting these people apart in this world. It's being different on the outside, being set apart for God. Now, somewhere along the way in their wandering in the desert, they stopped circumcising their youth. And that's curious if you understand that circumcision survived 400 years of slavery in Egypt, but not 40 years in wandering in the desert. And as a curious guy, I think, why? Why did that not survive? Well, there's not a clear answer in, in God's word, but we can rightly assume and jump to the conclusion that because these men and women and these families were in the desert, essentially under God's judgment, wandering in the desert, waiting for a whole generation to perish, that these people had grown more in love with their past 
than they were with their future. Certainly they confessed this much to Moses. To Moses they said, I wish we were back in Egypt. At least we had food there. We had fish and melons, lots of other food. At least can we go back there? Never mind the slavery, never mind the death. At least we ate. And so somewhere along the way, maybe it's true that these people grew more in love with their past than they were with their future. And anytime you love your past more than you love your future, holiness wanes. Pursuit of God wanes. Fighting sin wanes. When you lose your sense of what God might want to do in you and through you in your future, pursuing Christ stops. The past can be this beautiful lie that makes us believe that we've done something but requires nothing of us. And we should be rooted in a past that remembers God's faithfulness. We talked about that last week, but not in a way that just creates memories, only in a way that informs our future of what God might want to do in our lives again. And so it's very possible that because of, these peop- because of the wandering in the wilderness, these people lost hope for their future and their desire for holiness, which is what circumcision represents, waned. Chasing after God stopped, and the parents stopped circumcising their children. They didn't care anymore. They let them off the hook when it came to holiness. Let them off the hook. They may have forgotten to circumcise. They may have thought that they were off the hook, but listen, God never lets his people off the hook when it comes to holiness. Never. They may have forgotten to set themselves apart, to be a holy nation. God didn't. And so as they cross the Jordan, before God allows them to take any new territory, he demands that they become holy. That's what circumcision is about this time. God never lets people off the hook when it comes to holiness. And he has never stopped. It did not stop with the cross. We can read 1 Thessalonians 4 and talk about living a holy lifestyle. Each generation, each culture, each family, each person must make a decision in their life of how much holiness that they're going to pursue or not. It's our decision to buy in. And so let's take our time to refresh and refocus on what it means to be holy. And so understand this. We learned this from Joshua 5, that holiness is what separates us from being born into the faith from those who are bought into the faith. Holiness separates those who are born into the faith from those who are bought into the faith. And I would go on to say it separates those who are brought into the faith. Many of you are in this crowd today because somebody brought you into this room. They brought you to faith. But it's pursuing holiness in our lives that shows that we're bought in to Christ. Shows that we're for Christ. Just think about this in, in Joshua. This generation of people 
who crossed over the, the Jordan River, they did not choose, they did not choose to be born into the faith. They did not choose to be born into the faith. Just like you and I, were, we did not choose to be born a part of a Christian family, if that was your background. You didn't choose to be a part of a Christian nation. You didn't control that. It happened to you. It happened to you. Just because you're born into something doesn't mean that you're bought into it. And listen, some of you are born into this just because you made a decision in a season long ago that you are living in in this season. You're born in in that way, that you made a decision some time ago and maybe you've just coasted into this season. But your current holiness is always determined by your current buy-in. Your current holiness is determined by your current buy-in. And we see this in Joshua 5, that each generation, this generation of people, each individual had to make a choice. Each would have to choose to be bought into the life of faith. I mean, don't picture this too much, but this is literally what that story is saying in Joshua 5. You are to make a knife and go into your tent and determine how much you love Jesus, how much you love God. Make a knife of flint, go into your tent, and determine how much you love God. That's what Joshua is asking his people here. Are you bought in? And you may say, like, well, things are different. We have grace now. We don't have this overt pursuit of holiness. Where does grace fit into this, Steve? And I would say it does. Grace is extremely important, but any definition of grace that removes the need for holiness is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical concept at all. That's not what grace was designed to do for us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred in World War II in Germany for his faith, wrote a book called The Cost of Being a Disciple. The Cost of Discipleship, I should say. And he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And I just want to read a few quotes from his book. This is what he says. He says that cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For its sake, a man will sell all that he has for it. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant would sell all his goods for. Above all, costly grace is costly because it cost God his son Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much can never be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because it did not reckon his son to be too dear of a price to pay for our life, but delivered him for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. 
Costly grace is the sanctuary of God. It must be protected from the world and not thrown to the dogs. Talking about Peter, he says on two separate occasions, Peter was called. He said, Jesus said, follow me. They were the first words that Jesus spoke to him, and they were the last words that Jesus spoke to Peter. A whole life was lived between those two calls. Follow me. That grace was certainly not self-bestowed. It was grace, the grace of Christ himself, now prevailing upon the disciple to leave all and follow him. And so listen, the Israelites let their children off the hook for holiness, but God never does. Holiness separates those who are bought into the faith from those who are born into the faith, those who are truly committed and devoted And any concept of grace that removes or dismisses the need for holiness is not a biblical concept of grace at all. Grace doesn't remove the need for holiness. Grace gives you the power to live holy. And for you and I, holiness is much different than for our generation here in Joshua. And I thank God for that. Today, because of Christ, holiness looks different. Holiness is now this. Holiness is no longer an outward physical condition. It's an inward heart condition. Where the Israelites' removal of skin demonstrated being set apart, being holy, for us it's an inward heart condition. Paul writes about this in Romans 2. It says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Holiness isn't an outer thing. It's an inner thing done by the spirit. It's the very reason that Christ came. He came not for your actions. He came for your heart. He wants your heart. And so understand this, this holiness does not mean following rules. Holiness does not mean following rules. As soon as we make holiness about a set of behaviors that we are to do, we are in danger of legalism. Anytime we make holiness about following a set of rules, what we will do because of the pride of our lives, we will judge ourselves better by our ability to follow those rules and other people worse for their inability to follow those same rules. And then in that, we have diluted the cross. We have diluted the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus, in his sermon on the mount, in his commands, in his actions, always goes what's for at what's after and underneath the human effort, the human heart. He targets the heart. Following rules for their own sake is not the central message of Jesus. Holiness that is fabricated by action is not what he's after. Jesus, in response to the Pharisees of the day, the religious zealots of the day, the holy of the holies, in responding to them, he said, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You look clean outwardly, but inwardly, you're a mess. And so in Christ, holiness is rooted in something much different than an outward sign, rooted in something different than effort. With Christ, holiness is a love for God that will allow no distraction. 
Holiness is a love for God that will allow no distraction. A love for God with no distraction. So hungry after God that it will not sell itself out to anything else but but God. It is a singleness and focus. A singleness of focus. It's relational. It's not rules. It is as if we are devoting ourselves to a husband or a wife. It's that singleness and focus. We, in some ways, spouses are holy unto our spouses. We should be. I am holy unto my wife. Nobody distracts me from my love for her. Nobody gets that. Only her. And so today, in relationship with God, because of Christ, I think holiness really boils down to two kind of qualities. And that first one is that it's a love for God that hates sin. I didn't put that in your bulletin, but you can write that down. It's a love for God that hates sin, and write the whole thing down. Because we live in a generation that goes halfway. That we love God with our hearts, but hating sin seems to be optional. Listen, holiness is more than a love for God that wants to be near him, that wants to be with him. Holiness is more than having a heart with God, for God, or learning from him. It's a love that translates into a hatred of sin. A love for God that wants to be like him, not only in the things that he loves, but also in the things that he hates. And if you have questions on God's hatred for sin, read any prophetic book. Read a prophet. Jeremiah, Isaiah, anyone. They are there to remind us of God's hatred towards sin. Grace wasn't given to us so that we could casually dance around with sin and get all of the good stuff by grace. Grace was given to us to live holy lives. Grace was given to you as a means to kill the flesh, that there would be no condemnation from you walking out of your past into God's present. Grace enables that journey. It is not given to you so you can soak in the tub of sin and feel justified. Holiness is a love for God that hates sin with him. Not because sin costs you something, not because sin makes you feel bad, not because it's not living up to a code, but simply you hate sin because you love God that much. And so think about it. Do we fight against it? Do we fight against sin? Are we never surrendering to sin? Look, you may lose a battle in your life, but are we surrendering to sin? Do you flee from temptation? Do you flee from the appearance of sin? Do we confess our sin to God? If we are to be a holy people, we are to leave our life of sin. In other words, we are to love God enough to hate our sin enough to finally repent of it. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about growing. I'm talking about desire. Him. The great thing for you and I is that through Christ we have the Holy Spirit. And I would contend to you that the Holy Spirit who rests and lives with those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ, I would contend to you that he not only wants to change what you do, but he wants to change what you desire. Will you surrender to that? Will you listen to it? Will you lean into the fruits of the Spirit? 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self, faithfulness, and self-control. Will you lean into those things, that, that voice in you? Will you lean into it? Or will you not listen to it? God never lets us off the hook when it comes to holiness. Listen, hear this. You will fight sin for the rest of your life. You will fight sin for the rest of your life. And we have in this culture come to this idea where we think that we can have all the world and all its offerings and by the benefit of grace have everything Christ gave to us. That we can give, we can have both. But listen, if you have both, you have nothing. You have neither. Jesus never promised an easy life. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. The way is hard. The pathway is narrow. And in that narrow pathway, we find the flourishing that God designed us for. And so it's important for us to consider and think, what sin are we fighting against right now? Are we fighting or have we surrendered? Can we think of it? Can we, have we exposed it? Have we confessed it? The second quality of holiness is obedience. A love for God obeys. A love for God obeys. Love in the Bible, listen, love in the Bible is never translated into an emotion. Love in the Bible is translated into a commitment. It's in your will. There's a difference between having a heart for God and having strength for God. It is easy to come here and raise our hands and worship God when everything is going right. But will we have strength in God when they're not? Will we walk in his way even when it doesn't make sense? Will we by his strength walk in his way even if it's uphill? Both ways and against the flow. It's not your emotion. It's your will that matters. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. Love is a commitment, not an emotion. He says, whoever keeps my commandments loves me. That's Jesus. And so look, holiness is demonstrated through some specific types of obedience. And we're just gonna walk through these quickly today. Just five different types of obedience developed by a love for Christ that is not distracted. The first kind of obedience that we'll talk about is personal obedience. It is what it says it is. It's personal. You can't survive off of somebody else's holiness. They can't author your story for you. Every one of us must choose a point where we buy in. The next is painful obedience. I think Joshua 5 speaks really good to this. I'm guessing the Israelites uh, did not want to do this. I mean, who did? Who would want to make a knife and do that? What do you do when God asks you to do something you don't want to do? It is easy to be excited about God and pat ourselves on the back when we do things for God that we already desire to do. Whether I'm a Christian or not, I have a desire to be a great dad and a great husband. But what will I do when God asks me to do something that is painful, something that I don't want to do? 
The next one is private obedience. What happens in your tent? What happens when nobody knows it, nobody's around? If people knew what happened in your private tent, would they be more or less inclined to believe in who Jesus Christ is? In a week or so, we're going to talk about a guy named Achan who hid sin in his tent and the deadly ramifications that came from it. The next one is pointed obedience. You know, Scripture commands us to do lots of different things. It asks us to do lots of different things, but the Holy Spirit often boils that down to just the next thing, to one thing, very pointed. What is the Spirit asking you to walk away from or walk towards now? What is he pointing you to do? And the last one is present obedience. I think of this in two different ways. Uh, You can rely on yesterday's obedience or you can delay today's obedience till tomorrow. We all like the thought of tomorrow. Don't delay today's holiness for for just the, the, the thought of tomorrow. Choose to be holy now. Our people, this generation in Joshua, these are our people, they point us towards a God who has unequivocally called us to be holy. Not because he wants us to look good, but because we love him that much. And let's be honest, sometimes we all can get into a rut where we just settle and we coast. We just settle and we coast. Listen, Jesus didn't die so you could coast. He died so you could live. He died so you could live. And that life has a cost. It's a pursuit of him. God has a desire and a purpose for you. He has a design for you to flourish. And listen, apathy isn't flourishing. If we're apathetic towards the things that God loves and the things that God hates, that's not flourishing. And so just know, like, as a church, our aim is that we would never settle. Like, we would always want more of God, more of Him, more of His knowledge, more people coming to know Him, more people coming to experience Him, more people experiencing the flourishing that comes with Christ, more redemption, more reconciliation, more peace and more gratitude, more faithfulness. We will never settle. And that is why we push. We push towards God because the moment we stop, we move backwards. It is true in your spiritual life, the things that you've heard in this world, that you either move forward or you move backwards. You never stay the same. And so we will push forward. And so here's where it starts. Let us be uncomfortable with settling. Just let us be uncomfortable with where we're at positionally. Not that we don't acknowledge God loves you just where you're at, but you wouldn't settle for just remaining there. That maybe, just maybe, you would believe that God wants to take more territory in your heart, in your personal lives, in your families, in your work life, in your relationships. But first, he's asked us to be holy. 
to live for him. And that's something that we shoot for. We pray for that. We desire it. We work for it. Because God is just that good. And the beautiful thing about grace is that your past doesn't define you. I don't care how far you've fallen off the wagon in this. Grace gives you a new day to pursue holiness. Every single day of your life, I don't want that, Lord, I want you. Grace to move towards him. And so that's what we want to do. Would you pray for that with me? Because he is so worthy of it for what he's done for us. What a sacrifice and resurrection means. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our commitment. He's worthy of our sacrifice. And he's certainly worthy of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and we just, we praise you as a holy God who desires for us to flourish. And in that desire, Lord, you have never let us off the hook for holiness. And so, Lord, will you just move in our lives and convict us of where we fall short here and that, God, by the means of your grace that you would give us a new start, that we would chase after the likeness of you in every corner of our lives, that to this world we would be set apart as your holy people because of our love for you. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what it does to our hearts. Thank you for pushing it on us, and thank you for its truth. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your amazing name.